Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Main Street Finance Podcast. I am, of course, Alex, your host, and today we have an author with us. We are going to be interviewing Harry Stout. Now, Harry has just published his new book here in 2020 called Today's Life Insurance, a protection tool for your future. And I thought it would be a perfect opportunity to introduce life insurance to everybody. So we got this expert. We've got him here. Harry, welcome to the show. Alex, it's really great to be with you today, and let's have a great discussion. Oh, I'm 100% about it. In fact, that's why we're here. So let's hop right into it. Let's start with the very basic. What is life insurance? Well, life insurance is a legal contract between the buyer and a life insurance company. And that contract specifies certain key benefits that the life insurance company will provide to the buyer in exchange for the cash that the buyer puts into the contract. Pretty simple bargain. The thing about life insurance that's a little different, it's pretty pretty clear. You give your premium A in exchange for what is called a death benefit that's paid to your beneficiary. So very simple bargain. So essentially, it's just like insurance as far as most people are familiar with car insurance and that, hey, just in case you get into a car accident, we'll pay for any damage. But in this case, it's just in case you get into an accident that you maybe don't walk away from in an untimely manner then you get some financial compensation. Yes. I I think the easiest way for people to understand what life insurance is, Alex, is to look at it as cash for future delivery when you need it. So today's life insurance, has it's very broad. There's a lot of different available consumer benefits. But fundamentally, if you die in the future, the life insurance company is going to pay your beneficiaries an amount that you've selected. In the future, when that cash is needed, to take care of their needs because you're not there. Okay. And since we're talking about beneficiaries, let's do a little vocabulary here. So could you go into maybe a little bit more of a beneficiary and how you maybe select those? Sure. uh, Sure. When you you purchase a life insurance policy, you have to elect who's going to receive the benefits of that life insurance policy. Let's take an example. Say you buy a $250,000 term insurance policy. You have to elect who's going to receive that $250,000 should you die. That person is the beneficiary. Now, you have the option to make a person, an estate, a corporation, a church. You basically can make the election for the beneficiary however you'd like. So It's up to you. That's important, by the way, because you don't want to elect the wrong person or the wrong entity to receive the benefits from the policy. And uh, I know, as with your experience, you know that sometimes that happens. And when you elect, the insurance company has to pay who you've elected, not who you intended to elect. So it's important for you, you know, for people to understand that. Absolutely. So definitely something that should be checked rather regularly. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so we've talked about paying out that money to someone who needs it should you meet an untimely demise which is just a kind of lighthearted way. I'm going to feel like saying dying today. <laughs> but uh, so how do you determine who would need it? So what kind of situations would you need to be in to where you should have life insurance? One of the easiest ways to look at it, Alex, is this. You, again, cash for future delivery. Now, suppose you're very lucky. Suppose you have, you're, suppose you're wealthy. You've got significant assets. You have significant cash in the bank. And if something happened to you, potentially everyone's fine because you have the assets necessary 
to take care of their needs, be it living expenses, future education, or other benefits that you want to provide to them. But on the other hand, if you don't have the cash, you need life insurance. So there are situations where you don't need life insurance, and there are other situations where you do. So it depends on who you're trying to protect, why they need that money. And um, in my book, I talk about something called the protection spectrum and and give some guidance on how people can sit down and look at all the possible areas in their life where they need to have some sort of protection, some sort of coverage, and they can sit down and actually do an estimate of what that looks like. And then they'll know how much coverage potentially they need. And then that helps them in the buying decision. All righty. Now, that is very much a high level overview. So I want to kind of bring it down and kind of give some examples, if that's okay with you. Oh, sure. Please do. So I'd like to think I have a decent grasp on this. So we'll play a fun game where I'll throw out a situation. You tell me if I'm right or an idiot. Sound like fun? All right. Sounds great. (laughs) Or just ignorant. We'll go with ignorant. (laughs) So we talked about paying out money for everyday living expenses, which to me sounds kind of ironic because we're using a death benefit for living expenses. So if I understand the purpose of that right, that is maybe you have in a household, say you have husband, wife, handful of kids, let's say the American average, 2.5 kids. (laughs) Poor little Timmy's cut in half. (laughs) So you have whichever spouse is working, husband, wife, doesn't matter. They're the single breadwinner. The other is a stay-at-home husband, stay-at-home wife. And then some kind of accident happens to the one who's, say, bringing home the bacon. So that life insurance payout would be there to replace the income of the deceased spouse. So that way, you know, we're not throwing the household completely out of whack just because of this one accidental event. That's that's a great example. And let's let's take your example a little bit further. The average U.S. household today spends about sixty three thousand dollars a year. And that's the Bureau of Labor Statistics number. So a little over five thousand dollars a month in costs. So let, let's say for sake of argument today, Alex, you're the, you're the breadwinner and unfortunately you pass away, but your family still has to pay that $5,000. How will they pay that? Now, it could very well be that your spouse or partner works and they contribute. So that offsets that a little bit. But on the other hand, if not, they need that money for some period of time. And do you need that money? For instance, your children might be young. If you do have, let's take Johnny at two and eight. We've cut them all in half at this point in time. But let's take a look at it and say that for those children, maybe they're young and it's 15 years before they get to college, or it could be 10 years before they get to college. You have to sit down and work with a professional to figure out how much cash you would need to pay those living expenses so your family could stay where they are. Now, some people make the decision that, well, you know, I think I'm only, we're only going to provide us, well, we'll sit down as a couple and decide that, you know, if I had five years of living expenses, if you were to pass away, if I had five years, that would give me a chance to regroup. I wouldn't have to move the kids quickly. I would have a, enough money to be able to take care of us for that period of time, because maybe you can't afford all the life insurance coverage that you need. So people make these judgments, but that's living expenses. And then, Alex, let's add on it a little bit. Let's just suppose those children you had planned to not pay their full college education, your two and a half kids, but you decided that maybe what you would do is put away $12,000 for each year you expect them to go to school. That was going to be what you, the start you were going to give them to their college ed because you wanted them to have some skin in the game. You wanted them to have to put some cash into their college education. So you'd have to figure out what that amount is. 
You have to then figure out what it's going to cost to bury you. Unfortunately, you'll get those funeral costs in there. So you begin to see these buckets of need where you need cash to take care of each of them. And so working with a professional, you can see what kind of coverage you need. And then what you do is compare all those cash needs to what assets you currently have. And that kind of tells you the net, how much coverage you need. And uh, that's something people really need to do, Alex. A lot of times, and I get really upset about this, someone will see a television commercial, you can get $200,000 of term insurance for $5 a month and your your family's all happy. Well, $200,000, unfortunately today, because of zero interest rates and all the things we've got going on, it's not gonna go very far. And it's not really what your family needs. Having some coverage is better than no coverage, but you really need to sit down and have a, a good adult conversation within your household to figure out what your needs are. Absolutely. And something I want to throw out there to the audience is, look, this can be a rather morbid subject, but it's a necessary one. No one wants to talk about or plan for, you know, when I'm going to die, if I die next year, if I die tomorrow. It's not a fun conversation to have, but it's a necessary one. So I would encourage the audience not to shy away from it. Yeah. And, and Alex, let me give you two quick examples. Of Absolutely. One for preparation and one for not. I did business with a gentleman, uh, he's my business partner for a long time, but he worked, we worked together in a corporation and then in, a, in another business that we had. And um, several years into our new business venture, he was diagnosed with a stage four cancer. And um, it was really a, a very tough situation. And um, at the time, luckily, we had put in life insurance coverage for him before getting the illness. And then he passed away eight years later. Great man, fought so hard. But he was always comforted by the fact that he had coverage in place for his family. He knew, in this case, he had two boys, incredibly bright, great kids. Their college educations were taken care of. He felt very comfortable that if if he didn't make it, it was going to be okay. Now, I'll contrast that. This is a personal uh, personal story. My cousin had her 18-year-old daughter pass away because of a, a brain cancer. And uh, they did not have the requisite coverage, any coverage in place for the young lady. So uh, naturally, they do what so many people do today, which is create a GoFundMe campaign to help offset the bills uh, for that, her funeral. Uh, And um, it just shows you two different examples. And I'm not in any way denigrating GoFundMe as as a, it serves a great social need, but for people... People need to prepare and they need to be self-reliant and you need some coverage in place because you don't know if people are going to be charitable when you need them to be charitable. And when your life crisis happens, because, you know, I'm an older gentleman and I can tell you life crises happen to people. Absolutely. And it just goes to show that having that money is going to it only helps. Like it's not that it hurts you where it goes, hey, you know, you might have had an untimely demise. Here's $200,000. Not that that helps with the loss, but let's say I die tomorrow. If I die tomorrow, all of a sudden my girlfriend has a mortgage to pay. She might have some car notes to pay. And then if I'm bringing home all the money, then not only is she grieving me, but how is she going to pay the mortgage? How is she going to pay all these other bills? So it's both together. If you have this life insurance policy, you might be in a position, assuming you priced it right and got enough, to where she's still mourning your loss, still mourning my loss in the example, but financial worries aren't a part of the equation. That's taken care of. Alex, that's absolutely correct, because you want to be able to provide sufficient assets 
for people, your family to be able to emotionally regroup and continue to live life and be successful. And if you put severe economic pressure on them by not having the cash available, it's just, it's just terrible. And you don't want to do that. And so what life insurance can do, and I, I tell this to people, it helps them get their financial house in order and it brings peace of mind so you can sleep well at night. You know you've got protection in place so that if anything happened to you, that your family's taken care of, your loved ones are taken care of. That's it's just so important. Absolutely. And I do want to go back to my previous example, and I sort of want to flip it just to have another hypothetical, because this is something I've heard rather recently within the last couple of weeks. And since I've got a published author on the topic of insurance, might as well ask my question. So let's go back to our previous example where we have husband, wife, two and a half kids, the American dream. So it's not just that if the primary breadwinner happens to cease to be among us, but if it's the household spouse that stays home and maybe takes care of the house, takes care of the kids, if that spouse were to suddenly have an untimely demise, well, you still got to pay for childcare. You still need to have all your household stuff taken care of. Maybe that's a nanny. Maybe that's a daycare. Maybe it's a maid, whatever. But there's a lot of value being brought into the household by a non-working spouse. So having that money could help offset some of that as well. Absolutely. And you need to plan for that, Alex. I think that's, that's you brought up a really great point. And, that, and that's all about working with a professional to understand the family dynamic and what the needs are. But if you have one of the partners, one of the spouses at home, staying at home, it is a situation where that's, I call it uncompensated labor. It's, it's you know, you, you're, not getting, you're not getting paid to do that, but it's so value. I mean, it's, it's, how can we put a value on it? But you're right. You're going to have to pay someone else to help you with childcare, other chores around the home, other services so that you can continue to work, be the breadwinner while taking your parenting responsibilities seriously. So that's why you really have to think about this and you really need to make sure you're covered. Now, a lot of times people don't view life insurance as a priority. The research shows you this very clearly. Most people don't take any action on the risks that you and I've just talked about, which are real for our mythical family of two and a half kids. These are real risks. So most times people don't decide to get life insurance until something happens close to them be the death of a friend. It could very well be a seminal birthday. They turn 35 or 40 and they say, you know, it's about time for me to, to take action on this. I should do this. Or something else happens in their life where they said, look, I've got it. It's me. It's time. I'm an, I'm an adult now. I need to go do this. And uh, it, it is important. It's not, a, it's not a waste of money. What it is, is a building block in what I call your, your overall personal financial foundation. And uh, you need to look at it seriously and, and make really good judgments about what you're doing. Absolutely. And with that, I want to go back on something that you had mentioned before, and that is establishing what the needs are. So I think at this point in the episode, we've established the need for life insurance or why you should have it. But I'd like to go ahead and move on to maybe establishing what those needs are. How do you determine or rather what factors should be considered when you're thinking of how much life insurance should I have? Several of the life insurance companies uh, have little tools that, that, that people can use to do that. One in particular, there's a, a nonprofit, lifehappens.org, and they've got a calculator on their website that can help you get to where you need to be. But fundamentally, 
you need to look through the key aspects of your life and see what your responsibilities and obligations are. So we've talked about living expenses for our mythical two and a half kids and family. Got to make sure they're taken care of. Probably have a, an education cost of some sort. It could very well be college or it could be a, a good trade school. But having money so that help the children get to be self economically self uh, self sufficient, if you will. But I'll add to that then you may need money to pay off any debts you have. If, if you have a mortgage on your home, you want your family to be able to live in that home. So you need to consider what your mortgage costs mortgage obligations are. You mentioned um, potentially auto loans on the family cars and making sure that those are properly paid for because we know those, those are very costly today. You would want to leave those debt-free to your partner. So you need to go through, there's about 10 different areas that you need to think through and make sure you put a, an estimated dollar amount for what you, know, what you would need in terms of cash in the future to cover those. And again, what you do, Alex, is compare that coverage need to what assets you have, or you might have some additional coverage. I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Maybe you get sixty dollars to $100,000 of life insurance coverage at your work that could help with the overall cause. But unfortunately, the pandemic has showed us this. If you lose the job, you lose your work coverage. So uh, that's a whole other conversation about getting individual coverage versus just coverage at work. But um, This is the process that you go through, that you think through, and working with a financial professional, they can help you go through those various areas and and help you just take a look really objectively at what coverage you need, what assets you have, and then you'll understand what your gap is and maybe how much life insurance coverage you need to buy. I completely understand. And I'll go over my personal experience. Now, I do not have individual insurance on me at the moment. However, myself and my girlfriend, we live together. We live what I would consider to be a very frugal life, very not so much expenses. So really the only debts we have are a car and the mortgage. So through my workplace, it's a benefit that two years salary we get as life insurance. So if I were to pass tomorrow, two years of my salary would get paid out to my girlfriend. So that two years may not pay off the mortgage. It may not pay off the mortgage or the car. But it'll surely make those payments for, honestly, at least two years, (laughs) assuming I can afford my stuff. So in that situation, I feel like I don't need that additional individual insurance because I'm covered. But once we have the mortgage taken care of for at least several years, which will give her plenty of time to catch up and be able to figure something out and make all the other payments, she's solid. She just has to cover herself. My burden that I'm dragging along with the mortgage is gone just because we have that benefit I have through my work. Don't don't disagree with you, but what I, I might bring up to your attention is if something happens with your job, Alex, if something happens with that job and you are no longer employed there, that coverage is gone. So for many people, it's really a good idea to have an individual policy that you own, that you have that's that's off to the side, that's always with you. Because if you lose your job or maybe you change jobs and and instead of getting two times your salary, you go to a new employer and maybe you only get one times your salary or uh, a lower amount. And so I'm just suggesting to you, one, coverage amount might not be enough. But the other thing is, Alex, you're a young man and you've got you've just moved into your home here. You've got a got your girlfriend. And as time goes on, your needs may change and you might want to accumulate cash in your life insurance policy that you could use later in your life to help pay for your retirement. 
Well, does your employer's policy generate cash? Is it a policy that has all the benefits of that to help you look for uh, some of the needs you'll have later in life? So having a, the proper mix of policies, the proper amount of coverage, and having group, uh, group life insurance coverage at work is fantastic. Take it, use it, please. But you should consider having your own individual, as should your girlfriend. Because if something happens to her, and something happens to her, you know, maybe there's, it should be equal in terms of how we look at these situations today. So my suggestion would be you both should have some individual coverage in addition to your, your employment coverage at work. Completely understand. And that's something we might have to talk about tonight when she gets home. But uh, <laughs> if you want to give me just a second, I actually need to give a shout out to at Sherman Walt or user error CFA on Twitter. I actually posted a couple hours in advance of this interview, a little late if you ask me, a post out to all my followers on Twitter for, hey, I'm interviewing an insurance expert today. What kind of questions do you have? And the first question was submitted by him. Let's see. Please, if you could have your guest explain the downside of only having insurance at work. Some people say I have it through work, so I don't need it anymore. Would he explain? So That's I know we kind of covered it, but maybe if you have like an extra sentence or two that maybe we left out. All right. So when you get employment coverage at work or life insurance, group life insurance at your employment, uh, you get typically one to two times your salary in compensation excuse me, in the dollar amount of that policy. So if you're making $50,000 a year, maybe you're going to get $100,000 coverage. Now, that's great. That's a great benefit for you. And um, now what happens, however, is if you don't no longer work there, that coverage goes away. So number one, the, the coverage has a, a, a detriment, if you will, in the sense that if you no longer work there, you don't have coverage. A lot of people have discovered this in the pandemic as they've lost their jobs, uh, that they no longer have life insurance coverage anymore, and it's really hit home. So that's number one. Number two, the type of life insurance that you get through your employer may not be the type of life insurance that you need long term. And uh, again, you're, you're using life insurance to help you address certain key risks in your life. And, and again, you're a young man, Alex, but I can tell you that folks are going to be living longer and longer. And along the way, along your journey, you need to accumulate cash that's going to help you pay for all those wonderful extra years of life you're going to have. All righty. Yeah, definitely something to consider. Now, I'm glad you brought up the pandemic because that actually brings up the next question I got asked to me on Twitter. And this is going to be from at Let's Navit. That's N-A-V-I-T. And he asks, has the pandemic made life insurance acquisition harder to acquire? Yeah, I would say the answer to that is yes, in the sense that if you were buying a life insurance policy that requires underwriting, most of the companies have additional questions relating to your health, relating to the pandemic. And so in certain situations, it's taken a little bit longer to get the insurance coverage in place, but you might understand that because as we started this, for example, if you had traveled to China if you had spent significant time in Western Europe where the virus was you know, very well, uh, if you will, impacting the population, you, you were probably a candidate that you were going to get it. So the life insurance companies have additional underwriting questions, and some of those have required additional time to get completed such that you can qualify for the coverage. Okay, definitely makes sense to me, but... 
I do want to go into a little bit of a word we kind of throw around casually. Now, I am actually a credit analyst by trade, so I'm very familiar with the word underwriting. But just in case there are people in my audience who haven't heard it maybe in an insurance context, I think this is a wonderful segue into maybe how is life insurance priced, just high level? Basically, life insurance is priced based on your estimated life expectancy, how long you're going to live. That's a key factor. The interest rates that the insurance company can use to, to, if you will, invest the money that you give them, the premiums that you give them. The cost for the life insurer to maintain your policy. The cost that they have to pay to the various states for having capital and reserves. So all of this gets factored into that premium that you get. So age, health, also sex in, in, in a lot of situations is, is determined. Men and women. Women still live a little bit longer than men. We're not quite fifth. We're not quite on par yet, but women live a little bit longer. So their rates are just a little bit cheaper. All those factors get put in together. Now, there are different types of underwriting, different types of insurance policies, Alex, that you uh, that are available in the marketplace. But those are the basic factors that go into determining what that premium is that you pay. Okay. So if I may, let me give it let me give it a good shot at trying to simplify a little bit or try to give me a little quotable line here. So essentially, it's an assessment of risk is what underwriting is, or at least how I see it. So it all depends on when you're expected to die. And if you're listening on the podcast, I'm giving the air quotes when you're quote unquote expected to die. And some of this is so I'm 25. So 25, I am less likely to die in the next 10 years than someone who's 45. Therefore, my life insurance for assumed the same dollar amount might be cheaper than someone who's 45 applying for the same insurance. And Alex, I think that's a that's that's a that's a good summary, if you will. On the other hand, if the 25 year old and this is not you, but the 25 year old smokes um, and, and actually has a history of uh, some uh, cancer that they got at an early age, that 25 year old might be really risky. So the insurance company is going to assess that versus the 45-year-old as someone, for instance, who has been running marathons and uh, who has been, uh, you know, is a former uh, former member of the military in fantastic shape. And I'm serious, runs five marathons a year. Maybe that individual is in really excellent shape and maybe their premium should be a little bit less. So when you when you look at underwriting, underwriting is the basis of classifying someone's risk, as you described. The insurance company needs to be able to assess what the risk is, determine what the appropriate price is to charge the individual. And uh, that's, that's what the process is that we all go through. And how each insurance company makes the decision as to what the risk is, is their underwriting process. All right. Totally makes sense to me. So since you're underwritten based on your risk, and some I throw out there is age, and personally, I've never worked in insurance, but I would imagine age carries a lot of weight. Now, I imagine there's a million and one things they look at. Do you smoke? Do you race motorbikes? Do you like skydiving? Any and all of those million and one things will make your premium a little bit higher, a little bit lower, depending on where you are on a certain spectrum. But my assumption is that age will play the biggest thing, because you can be the fittest 65-year-old out there, but the fittest 65-year-old isn't going to outlive maybe the slob, the most slobby 30-year-old. So it's all taken into account, but I would imagine age is one of the biggest things. So A, am I kind of onto something there? And B, would the answer to part A 
mean that you should look for life insurance earlier than you might think? Yeah, that, those are great questions, Alex. And yes, age is a key factor. And I, I can't express to your audience enough, you need to get coverage in place. The, you want to buy as much life insurance as you can when you're a young person. As young as you can possibly be, you, can, you should buy and put in place as much as possible because and, and also have it in place for as long as possible, in my view, because um, it, it's just what you should do to have that foundation in your life. And I'll give you a great example. Sometimes people will say, well, I'm just going to go buy a 10-year term insurance policy. They hear it on television. They see it on television. They hear it on the radio. I'm going to get that 10-year term policy. Well, one of the things they might find out is at the end of 10 years, they have to requalify for the life insurance coverage at the end of that 10 years. And sometimes life changes. Sometimes you do get the illness. Sometimes something happens to you where you might not be able to get coverage at the end of that 10-year period, or it would maybe cost you significantly more than it could have been if you bought it at a younger age. So life insurance, you need as much as possible. Buy it when you're young because uh, it's, it's so much cheaper. But uh, age does drive it. Alex, you're, you're, you're correct. And it's a key driver. And uh, again, younger is better. See, that's what I would have thought. But see, that's why I have the experts on here, so I can utterly take advantage and ask questions. Speaking of utterly taking advantage and asking questions, this is 100% a question for me and was not sent in by anyone else. So I'm obviously 25, and for anyone who's ever watched one of my videos on YouTube, by the way, this is a video interview, just in case you know, you're know a couple minutes in and you want to switch over. Anyone who's seen my videos knows that I am rather overweight. So... Let's lead into the question here. I am 25. However, if I wanted to go and get a 20 or 30 year term policy, which we'll go into what a term policy is in a minute. If I go in now, yes, I'm 25, but I'm also very much overweight. So again, if you're looking at that million and one different ways that they adjust you, or if they look at how your policy should be priced, an overweight 25 year old is going to die a lot faster than a non-overweight 25 year old. So in my particular case, which I'm going to go ahead and throw out the disclaimer that you are not my insurance agent and no way am I able to sue you for any advice that you give. All advice is considered general. Uh, any opinions that you give are not the opinions of your employer <laughs> or publishing company, yada, yada, yada. I think we got all the disclosures out of the way there. But for, in my particular case, just in case there's someone else that fits my profile, would it behoove me to get the life insurance now just because I'm young? or maybe take a year or two, get fit or lose weight, and then maybe go for it then? And Alex, I'll, I'll say this to you. I think in any individual circumstance, you work with a financial professional, and, and the insurance companies have height and weight tables. And in addition to uh, the, the way in which they think about the way they underwrite or the, the underwriting process, and maybe they have five classes of underwriting. And let's say at the top end are the superhumans, the marathon runners, you know, great height, weight, incredibly fit, and at the other end of the spectrum are people with health issues. So they classify people into these various areas, and then they have height and weight charts that they use to be able to classify the risk and determine what the premium should be for the individual. Uh, now, the way in which the industry works is different companies have a little different height and weight charts. Different companies view different illnesses or, or different uh, surgeries differently than others. So working with a financial professional, they can help position you. And for instance, they may very well find that even though you're 
a little bit overweight at this particular point in time. Your own admission here. I'm not saying anything. No, you're fine. No, so, so, so you're you know, you're saying I'm a little bit overweight. Maybe they can find you a, a really reasonable premium based on where you are today. And some companies would say, hey, okay, we'll insure him. We understand that he's 25. We'll do that. Others, other companies might be more strict with their requirements. And as a result, you, you might be put in a category where you'd have to pay higher premiums with that company. So think of it as a way of they classify the risk. And I'm just for your audience trying to be as simple as possible, superhuman to having significant illness, and then charge you a premium based on where you are in that spectrum, including your age. Gotcha. And something else I want to throw out there. So I'm an underwriter for a bank. So typically how we do things is we'll re-underwrite someone every three or five years, or we'll have a loan be that long. Would it be some kind of possibility? I know some of these terms are 10, 15, 20, 30. Hypothetically, if I have some kind of health condition or I'm, you know, not in the right place in the height and weight table, would it be possible I go get a policy tomorrow and then five years from now I am a marathon runner? Is there some kind of re-underwriting that could be done or is it once you're set, you're set? Once you're set with that carrier, you're set. Usually folks don't re-underwrite. Companies do not re-underwrite. But what you could do when you've reached your marathon stage of your life, and that's what you're doing on a frequent basis, you work with, again, your life insurance professional, and they, they chop your risk at that particular point in time. And maybe they can find a company that will insure you for a lot less premium than you've been paying, even though you've aged, but your health's so much better. So again, life insurance is something you need to assess each year, Alex. You need to take a look at your coverages, what you're paying, what your health is what your overall needs are. And again, you can apply for more coverage with another company. You can let the coverage you originally bought lapse. I mean, because you pay for it on an annual basis. If you don't pay the premium that's paid for the policy, the policy lapses. So you can go from company A to company B. And that's uh, you have that option. So that, that optionality, if you will, is always there. All righty. And I think now that we've gotten, actually, no, first off, Thank you for the advice. You know, I know it's kind of free here. I brought you on here, but uh, take, completely taking advantage of my status as a podcaster to ask personal questions. <laughs> so I do want to thank you there. So let's go on to something that may be maybe a little bit more applicable. So we've talked and said the word term several times here. Now, in my mind, and I think I've got this right, but again, we're going to play the fun game of does Alex know what he's talking about or is he ignorant? In my mind... There are three different types of life insurance. You've got term, whole, and universal. Is that about right? And if so, or even if I'm wrong, could you maybe give us a differentiator? What makes each one of them unique? Sure, sure. The first is term insurance. And term insurance is just pure protection. All you're doing is you're paying money every month, quarter, year for pure protection. And let's say, for the sake of argument, that's $100,000 of coverage for a term, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. That is the term you're buying. You'll notice that I didn't say for your whole life. It's about just that term. And so that's term insurance. Whole life, think of it, whole of life is for your entire life. And the premium that you pay is for your whole life, but that coverage stays in place your entire life. So Alex, we'll uh, go back to your example real quick. In the uh, If we buy 10-year term insurance only for 10 years, that's the only amount of coverage that you have, whole life would continue 
that 100000 for your entire life as long as you paid the premiums. So there are the two, the two bookends, if you will. Universal life is a form of permanent coverage. It stays in place your whole life, but you have the ability to change the amount of coverage and the premiums that you pay based on changes in your life. So it gives you more flexibility. So it sits in the middle. And I think that's a, a good way of looking at the bookends and the middle of the overall life insurance spectrum. Okay, so now that we have a basis of what each of our three main types is, could you maybe give maybe a short couple sentence response to maybe what kind of situation would a perfect candidate for a term life insurance be? Or what kind of situation would whole be better for you? Or what kind of situation be, would universal be better for you? Alex, I'm a believer in having a mix of coverages. So let me give you, uh, I'll give you, if you will, one of the ideas that I always have. It's like you're building a house in some way. So you need some element of permanent coverage for your life. Now, whole life does that for you. And you, you, you might be as a young person, maybe you don't need a lot of coverage as a young person, but you've got some in place. But as you get older, say you stop working, you still need to have money around to pay for your final expenses. You need certain amount of coverage in place for your entire life. So let's just call that a, a foundation of whole of life. And that's what whole of life does. It gives you protection for your whole life. Now, your needs are going to change a little bit. But as you get older, you're still going to have to have that money to, to cover final expenses, your burial, any uh, medical bills that might happen as a result of an illness that you have. So having that permanent coverage in place and buying it young when it's less costly is the way to go. Now, let's just assume you and your girlfriend get married in two years and you, you have children and you're going to have those children. You know, luckily, hopefully, you'll, in today's world, you'll have them for 30 years for most people, believe it or not, because I, I something I call the journey to 30. But let's <laughs> say in your case, because I've got to understand you a little bit, your children are going to be around for 18 years and they're going to be off and on their own. You're going to help them get to where they need to be so they get off to college. Well, as you look at that 18 years, you have a lot of additional responsibilities. You have to provide for their living expenses, their education, and so on. So your protection needs are probably going to be higher during those years when you have the kids. So it might behoove you to put a 20-year term in place because your protection needs are a lot more significant during that 20 years. So you would go out and buy a term insurance policy for that 20-year period. Not for whole of life, which is more expensive. You would only buy it for that 20 years to cover those years when your, your kids needed you most. And if something happened, you wanted to take care of them. And, and so that's an example of, of what you might do. Now, when you buy term insurance, term insurance really doesn't have any, it doesn't generate any value, any cash value over time. All you're doing is paying the premiums, you get the protection. The policy itself does not accumulate any cash. But suppose you wanted a policy that you want to try to get back as much of your premium and cash investment, if you will, or cash accumulation as possible. Universal life fits in the middle. So you can really change the coverage amount and increase how, how much goes into cash accumulation. Because as you look at your life, and I, I have a, in my books, I talk about the various financial stages of life you're going to have to focus on accumulating cash for your later years. 
So if you have an insurance policy that gives you protection when the kids are young, for example, or when your needs are higher, but allows you to accumulate cash for later on, it might be a winning ticket for you. And that flexibility might help you. So that's kind of how each would play. And there's some examples of how you would position them. Okay. So just to make sure I understand it right. So it's kind of like term is out by itself and term you buy a specific period, 10 years, 15, 20, 30. And then if you don't die in that period, that's it. But you paid for that protection in case you die. There you go. But with whole and universal, that's kind of a guaranteed as long as you're paying your premiums, that's going to be your whole life. So you are almost guaranteed to die during the time that you have that policy because that's what it's there for. Is that about accurate? That, that, that's fair. Yes, I think that's fair. And then this, if you will, whole life and universal life are policies that accumulate cash. And when you talk about life insurance, that's very important, Alex, because that cash that you accumulate, there are some ways in which you can withdraw that cash on a tax advantage basis to pay for your later years of life or to pay for needs that you might have. That cash might be, you might be able to withdraw cash from that policy to pay for those college costs. And you might find another source of cash and savings to be able to do that and bring it forward. So cash accumulation is something we need to think about. And as you work on what your needs are and what your financial solutions are, I always look for ways that I can accumulate cash. All right. And that brings me to my next point. Now, I didn't mean to trap you here, but I got to be outright that from what I know, and I'm not saying I'm an expert in insurance, but from what I know, I'm pretty against whole life and universal life. I, I can admit to my bias because in my mind, it's all about assessing risk. The sooner you die, the more likely they are to pay out, the more you have to pay. That's just kind of how they calculate the premiums. So if you have a term policy, there is a possibility and likely a high possibility that if I get a 20-year policy, I'm 25, there's a very good chance that that insurance doesn't have to pay out. So because of that, the premium is going to be smaller. Now, for whole and universal, your premiums are going to be higher because as long as you're paying, they're going to pay out when you die because it's for your whole life. But you get the added benefit of a cash value building. Now, my response to that entire situation is I get that whole and universal accumulate a cash value and that cash value grows. But the price for that is you're paying higher premiums. So what would be the difference between having a whole or universal life policy versus having a term policy because that's cheaper and then investing the rest? That is a way that you can look at it. That is the way that you can look at it, assuming that you can uh, invest it in a way that's going to generate significant return for you. Now, one of the things when you have a, a cash value life insurance policy with a life insurance company, you're relying on the professional asset managers and the portfolio managers that are part of that organization to manage that cash. And some people are quite capable of, you know, buy term and invest the difference is, is a, an expression that's out there. And that could be a solution for some people. But for others, they look at the cash that goes into universal life and into their whole life policies as a bond or a safe money kind of investment that they're putting away for later on. And so they look at it that way, considering the fact they're paying for their insurance also. They're getting the insurance benefit. So, you, you know, different people look at it different ways, and it would depend, again, what you're looking to achieve long term. Personally, Alex, I'll tell you, uh, 
One of the best performing assets I own is a whole life insurance policy that I bought when I was uh, 34 years old, and I still have it, and it's it's performed incredibly well over that period of time. And as we talk today, we can also talk about some of the other tax benefits that Congress has given to life insurance and the cash accumulation side of life insurance that may be of interest to your listeners. Yeah, absolutely. If you would go into it, I'd be very happy. One of the things that Congress has done, Alex, is two key things. One, the cash that's inside a life insurance policy accumulates on a tax-deferred basis. And what that means is the owner of that policy pays no current taxes on any gains, any interest, any earnings that that life insurance policy has. They don't pay any current tax on it. So over time, that cash value gets to accumulate without having to pay current taxes. So tax deferral is is key. Another key advantage that life insurance policies have is that you can borrow the money out in your later years, if you will, using a loan. And many companies, life insurance companies today have policies that don't require the loan to be repaid. They're structured in a way that you can borrow the money out later on in life, and you're effectively able to create a tax-free stream of income, say, when you turn 65 or 70 for your generation, because I think 70 is going to be the, uh, the time frame that you're all going to have to work for a couple of different reasons. But you've got that stream. You might be able to create a stream of income that lasts you 20 years after you turn age 70 using the cash value that's in that policy, provided you don't have a need for the benefits that are part of the life insurance policy. No need for the death benefit or any of the other benefits that the policies currently offer. So it's a way to accumulate cash, again, for the future on a tax-deferred and tax-advantage basis. So as far as the tax advantage basis, now I'm just kind of listening as you're saying and kind of formulate, I'm trying to find a relationship to something I know. Would it be fair to say that the sort of tax deferment or tax advantage that it gets is kind of like a, is it kind of like the advantages that you get with a traditional IRA or a traditional 401k in that you put the money in, or I guess in this case, it's given to you or it's assigned to your account and then it grows tax deferred until you pull it out? Yes, Alex, that is a great, that's a great comparison. And one last point that I need to make, and it's probably the most important, and I, and I, uh, is this, that, um, that $200,000 of term insurance that you purchase, if you will, or the, the, the $200,000 of whole life or the 200,000 of universal life, when that's paid out, the beneficiary of that policy doesn't have to pay tax on it. Okay. So properly structured. They're not going to have to pay any income taxes on it. That's a significant advantage. So if you get you know $200,000 tax-free is much different than $200,000 taxable. Absolutely. So, so tax, you know, tax deferral, tax advantage loans, and then the tax-free, income tax-free death benefit in the policy, significant. And by the way, only about 60% of Americans know that life insurance is tax-free. Many people think that they actually have to pay tax on it, about 40%. So that's what the studies indicate. You'll use that in any financial planning that you're doing. All right. And I do want to throw this out there. I know we kind of said it earlier as a, not as a joke, but we said it for you to me. But since we didn't say it earlier, I do want to throw out a couple more disclosures. 
that although Harry Stout is an expert in the insurance field, he is not your specific insurance agent, dear listener. Any advice he is giving should be considered as general. Uh, please don't sue him because he doesn't know who you are. <laughs> and Alex, I think thank you for thank you for saying that. And I think one of the thing that think one of the things that you try to do in your programs, and one of the things that I do in my books and my content, is we're just trying to help people get educated, financially get more financially literate and financially educated, so they can improve their financial affairs, make better decisions take risk and anxiety out on a day-to-day basis. And these policies, many times, as soon as you talk about life insurance, a lot of people, their, their eyes glaze over and they run away from you as quickly as possible. But what they're neglecting to really spend, if you spend some time and understand the tool that it can be and how it can help your life and help you protect your current needs as well as plan for the future, uh, it's, it's a tool that you should consider using. Absolutely. It's definitely something to consider and something I try to do here on this show. And really the goal here is to get the knowledge out there. I can't give out every detail, no matter how many guests I have on this show, I can't cover every detail, every possible scenario. But now that you're listening to this or watching this, you have sort of a baseline knowledge to where you can go to whatever professional you need to armed with the right questions. What kind of things should you ask? What kind of things should you, should you look forward to? So as I said before, Mr. Stout is not your specific insurance agent, but some of this stuff that we're talking about might be something you might want to write down and bring to an insurance professional and maybe have a conversation. And Alex, when you look at it, one of the things I wrote about in my book, and the reason I wrote my book was to give the reader information that they could use to get comfortable so they can meet with a financial professional. Now, that financial professional might be an internet-based life insurance agent. It could be someone who's in their community. Well, I guess today they'll have to meet virtually. Maybe sometimes they'll meet face-to-face. But to prepare people to have a conversation, and I'll tell you, it's so important, and you, you hit the nail on the head here. People just need to be comfortable asking questions and understanding why they're doing what they're doing, what the risks are in their life, and how these products can help them in addressing the risk to protect their families to make sure they have a solid financial foundation. Absolutely. And with that, we've mentioned it a couple times here. Would you mind giving us a quick synopsis of kind of what you go over in your book? If we can say the title one more time and maybe a target, who should read this book? Who is this book for? Oh, sure. It, it, um, the book is entitled Today's Life Insurance, A Protection Tool for Your Future. And I've taken you know 30 years of financial services experience, condensed it to 140 pages. I wrote it in uh, non-jargon as much as I possibly could, and it walks the consumer through the different types of life insurance policies, the application process, why you buy, how much protection you need, and it talks about the life insurance companies because many times people do not trust life insurance companies. There are issues of trust with them, and I go in and I, I ran businesses. I was the chief executive officer, president of uh, two of the nation's largest life insurance companies. And I go in to talk about what the regulatory environment is, how those companies are regulated by the states, how uh, they have to put up capital reserves, how they pay benefits, all those things. So my overall objective in the book is to prepare the individual to be able to have a conversation with an advisor and to be able to ask the right questions. 
and I've kind of laid it all out. I, I, you can do your own estimate of uh, how much protection you need. I give you uh, a little worksheet that you can use to be able to work through and do that. So it's it's all right here in the in the book. This is the, the green book, the, the financial verse, uh, today's life insurance. So it's all laid out that way. But uh, again, 25 years of experience running life insurance companies, simple, easy guide to what you need to do. And uh, the way I look at it, it takes about, uh, about three hours to read. So you invest some time, and we can talk about time spent on money matters later. But you spend about uh, you spend about three hours reading, and you'll be prepared, and then you can make a decision. And you might want to say, look, I don't want to deal with an agent. I don't want anyone calling on me. But there's so many internet life insurance companies today, you might be able to get the policy you need right off the internet. But to do that, you still have to have an understanding of what you're looking for, the risks you're looking to cover, and what you need to do. Of course. And you have to know before you spend any money, you got to know what it is you're buying. It's all fine and dandy if the person you're talking to is describing it, letting you know, giving you a whole packet of documentation on what it is you're buying. But if you don't understand it, then what benefit are you really getting? If you don't know the cost and the benefits of whatever it is, whether it be a mutual fund, whether it be life insurance, whether it be whole life insurance, whatever it is, you got to know the pros and the cons. So you got to have that base knowledge before you just jump into something. And that's something we've tried to do with this episode, something you've done with your book. And I'm sure there's other resources all over the place. The book is going to be listed. I'm going to have the link in the description below. There were a couple of links that Mr. Stout gave us earlier in the episode. That is also going to be in the description below. Well, a quick one for you. I just want to let you know, I have a website, financialverse.com, and I have resources that people can go through there and click on and uh, life insurance resources they can look at and they could research on their own. So I'm all about providing information. I don't sell. I'm not selling life insurance. I'm not selling people's names and addresses for visits to my website. I'm not doing that. I'm trying to provide information and content so that people can feel more comfortable in making these decisions because fundamentally today, Two quick things for you, and I know you know this, but I'll I'll summarize it real quick. Average American spends two two minutes and twenty four seconds a day on their money. Two minutes and twenty four seconds. They spend ten minutes a day reading, and over two and a half hours a day on social media. So one of the things that you're trying to do with your podcast, and I'm trying to do with my books and content, is to help people get educated. And uh, lastly, and this is the one that'll hit home with your audience, I think. In our country today, we spend more time training and, and we have more requirements for people to get a driver's license. All states require it versus driving money. We, we only have 19 states today that mandate a personal financial education course by the time you graduate high school. So we've got a knowledge deficit, a literacy deficit for people. And all I'm trying to do with my books, and in particular, this today's topic on life insurance, is to make people more informed consumer. Because as you said, you don't buy anything unless you understand what you're buying. Absolutely. And in fact, you actually jumped ahead a little bit because my next question was going to be, in case my audience had any other questions for you, or maybe they wanted to learn more about you, maybe wanted to connect with you, get to know you or what kind of resource you have. Did you have any links for us? So you kind of beat me to it. But if you'd go over and give us one more quick summary. Oh, sure. Sure. Um, people can go to the easiest thing to do is to go to financialverse.com, one word. And, and you can see uh, our, my content that I write. I write uh, a blog, uh, two, uh, two blog posts per week with money-saving ideas and thoughts. You can access my books and uh, the growing uh, level of books. And as the pandemic has intensified, 
the number of books I'm writing continues to increase because uh, we're all locked in, which is fun, fun or not fun. And then I also have resources there for people that they can, uh, resources laid out. And then there's a form there to contact me. My team will get to me and I, I respond back. And by the way, as you, as you do in your podcast, I do in my books and content, I get some of my greatest ideas and greatest thoughts from subscribers, listeners who send in questions that people really want to ask, but maybe no one's asked before. And it really gets the conversation going and you come up with ways you can help people. Well, alrighty then. And all of that will be in the description below. I'm going to have links to everything. And I got to ask you one last question. Did you have fun? Oh, yeah. actually, Alex, I did. It was enjoyable. And uh, th this is a subject we need to talk more about. And what I tell people, and you'll, and you'll laugh at this, maybe you won't, but as I've prepared this book and getting this book out, I've had a, a team of young people that were taking my picture and helping me with press interviews and other things. And one of the interesting things was they asked me to stay afterwards and to talk to them about personal financial issues, life insurance, how they can get better money knowledge. So people out there, I think, really are starved for good quality information to help them. And to me, this is enjoyable. This is where we should be spending our time. We need to talk more about money in a way that helps educate people. Absolutely. 100% agree. I mean, I did all this, created all this just, just to do that, fill that void. But yes, I 100% agree with you. All right, Harry. Well, we've had a great episode today. I'm super excited to go back through this, edit it, and publish it out for everybody. Do you have any maybe last-second words of wisdom for the audience today? Yes. Yes, I do, Alex. When you look at it, we've touched on a lot of things today, and, and you've been uh, very good about the questions you've asked me and using yourself as an example. But I think what today's conversation points out is that your listeners in the audience who think they need protection should seek out a financial professional who can have detailed conversations with them about their needs. You and I talked about general matters today. We touched on a lot of different things, but if they can find a good local professional who can work with them, make sure their individual situation, their specifics are dealt with, it'd be powerful for them. And uh, I would feel as though we did them a service today in our call. Absolutely. I think we've definitely covered a good baseline for people, definitely given them with your website, your blog, giving them some more resources in case they want to look out some more, even a book if they want something new and shiny on their bookshelf. Hopefully they actually read it. They better read it. <laughs> but I think we've done some good things today. Absolutely. Just like we talked about last week in the episode with Tracy Bissett, you got to have these professionals in your corner. If you don't know something, don't be ashamed to go and find out somebody who spend their entire professional career learning about this stuff. There is no shame in reaching out to an expert, whether that be Harry as an insurance person, maybe that's a personal finance coach, maybe that's a CFP. Whoever that is, don't be afraid to reach out to somebody. Totally agree with you, Alex. And that's, uh, if we can deliver that message to folks today, ask questions, get educated, you'll, you'll protect yourself and your family so much more. And I'll tell you, it's, it's really important to, you need that strong personal financial foundation. Absolutely. Well, Harry, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I had an absolute blast for the audience at home. You have more resources you need to go look at. And when you're done with that, I'll see you guys next week.